Hop up for 8 o'clock at the Greater 3 UZ Sammy Show for Friday night. Okay, the time is 22 before 9, 12.72 SM with Ian Macrae in the morning. For AP and Kevin Hillier, Sunday morning, out for a couple of showers later today and a top of 25. Well, it's 27 past 12 right now. This is Laurie Bennett at 2SM. At 24 to 8 with Peter Grayson, town at the moment 17 degrees. Hi, hi, Victoria. Stand the man. Hello. Well, hi and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so where we get to talk to the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest has just about done it all. Journalist, tick. Psychologist, tick. Author, tick. Singer, tick. Mother, tick. And the queen of daytime radio in the 80s in Melbourne, big tick there. It could only be one person, the delightful Muriel Cooper. Each day of the week, you hear people speak, and here is what they say. 3AW sounds good. 3AW sounds good. Hey, Muriel Cooper, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. It's fabulous to be here, Paul. Now, firstly, a young girl who spent her first six and a half years in Scotland, when did you lose your accent? (laughs) <laughs> well, there's a story to that because uh, as every child, I suppose, wants to fit in. And when we came to Australia, I was six and a half and I went to school and I desperately wanted to fit in. So uh, I tried to speak Australian. And for about two months, nobody could understand me because uh, my Scottish accent, no, the, the, the Aussies couldn't understand my Scottish accent and my family couldn't understand my Australian accent. And so it resolved itself when I came home one day from school and said to my mum, can I have a pie? (laughs) And my mother was horrified and she said to my aunt, what's she saying? And my aunt said, she wants a pie. (laughs) And so it was my mother's personal mission from then on to teach me how to talk proper. Uh, which is probably how I ended up on radio. So goodness knows if she hadn't have made the effort what I would have sounded like. But there you go. So thanks, Mum. Indeed. So what did motivate your parents to leave Falkirk in Scotland and why did we choose Western Australia? Well, why Western Australia was because my uncle and aunt had already emigrated and since we were 10-pound poms, it was helpful to have a sponsor Otherwise, you went to Dimboola or what? You know, is it Dimboola? One of those, you know, camps. And so we went to stay with my uncle and aunt. And actually, we almost went to Canada, but that was the cruncher because um, because my uncle Jim and Auntie Pat lived in Perth. So why the decision to leave Scotland? Oh, it's bloody cold. <laughs> it's freezing. Beautiful country. It's it's absolutely glorious country. But it's one of those places that's nice to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. 
And also dad and mum wanted opportunity. You know, they wanted to to expand, fill up their themselves up with some fresh air. And so that was, yeah, that was the reason. So Muriel, how were you as a student? And at uh, what stage did you start to consider journalism as a career? I never did. I was a great writer at school. I wrote for the school magazine. I was in the drama club. I always did very well at any subject that involved the written word. When it came to mathematics, I was hopeless, absolutely hopeless. (laughs) I squeaked through always by the skin of my teeth when it came to numbers. But when it came to words, I would get like an A plus every time, high distinctions. So how did that first break into journalism come about? The editor of the school magazine was looking for a cadet and he was trolling through the school leavers and I suppose he spoke to the school principal and, you know, said, oh, have you got anybody that might be likely? And and my name came up and so basically I was offered the job and pe- pe- we had, we had um, vocational guidance, you know, when, when you're about to leave school and and you have a meeting with the teachers, et cetera, and, they, and you get basically in those days you got told what you were going to do. You're going to be a teacher. You're going to be a nurse, you know. You're going to be a secretary. And they came to me and pointed to me and said, you're going to be a journalist. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds good. <laughs> yep, I'll, I'll do that. I had already uh, done an audition at the local hairdressers because I thought being a hairdresser might be fun. And my audition involved having to shampoo someone's hair. And I just shampooed it because I assumed that the person had already been shampooed by other applicants. But no, I failed the audition as a hairdresser because I only shampooed their hair once. And in those days, you were always given two shampoos. And presumably that was because you never washed your hair, like from one week to the other until you went back to the hairdresser. <laughs> so I, I I got told that I was going to be a journalist and I was the cadet uh, journalist at the Great Southern Herald and Catanning in WA. And, um, yeah, it was going along quite nicely. I actually really loved it. It was uh, a it was a tremendous experience because it was the full deal in those days. Like you, they actually melted down. They had the stone to, on which they set the front page. They actually melted the lead down to pour into the fonts. There was the linotype machine. So, and, and the bits of hot metal would land on the wood around the, around the, the um, set and, and smoke would come up. It was very alchemic. It was magical and, yeah, and I loved it. It was great. Now, Catanning, which is 277 kilometres southeast of Perth, was also your first radio appointment at 6WB. How did the transition come about from journalism to radio? Well, uh, my first gig on 6WB came as a result of me being a, a cadet journalist. So once a week, the cadet the journalists would go out to the local radio station, 6WB, and they would read the news out of the paper just because it was fresh off the print. And because it 
in those days, there was no electronic media. So the paper physically had to be delivered to outlying towns. And that sometimes would take a couple of days because the paper came out on a Friday. So lots of people wouldn't get the paper until Monday. So somebody from the newspaper, uh, one of the senior journalists usually, would go, would drive out to the radio station, which was about four miles out of town, get what that is in kilometres, and read it and read the news. And the editor of the paper, who was a real Perry White, his name was Bill Sinnott, and he had the bulbous nose and he smoked a cigar. And he called me into his office one day and this and this is he talked a bit like Darren Hinch and he said, Muriel, I think you should go out to the news news radio station, read the news. I said, Oh well, okay, I'll do that. You know, I mean, as a as a teenager, you know, you're game for anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, why? Why do you want me to do it? And he said, Well, they can't understand what those journalists, the, the senior guys are saying. They rush through it. All they want to do is get to the pub. Because it was twelve <laughs> o'clock on Friday, <laughs> so the, the so the senior journalists uh, were, were triumphant because they thought, well, that'll be great. But I didn't have my license; I was still learning as a learner driver, and uh, so for a while they they had to actually drive me out to the radio station. So they didn't get off lightly. They didn't get to the pub on time after all. So wherever you go, isn't it great to know you're in touch with the world through radio? Now, 6 Science. Now, I do believe you were offered a Capital City gig at 6IX in the late 60s, but in fact knocked it back. Why the reluctance to take on that job? The person who was in charge of the station that was always the chief engineer, or the, the engineer, and he unbeknownst to me, recorded me reading the news and sent it to 6IX in Perth. And I got a call from him saying, uh, "This the head of 6IX, the manager of 6IX, Mr. John Hun, wants to speak to you about a job in the newsroom at 6IX. And I was flabbergasted because I had no idea and he didn't tell me he was doing it. And um, so I had a talk to Mr. Hun, who's a delightful man, and uh, he's, he, he gave me the job, the gig, as a, 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 as a cadet in the newsroom at 6IX. So that was done dusted. I was going to go to the city, the big smoke. Um, and then this is about 1967, 68. And then in... Um, about four days after I got the gig, I got another phone call saying, well, we've decided to set up local programs at another radio station called 6MD in Meriden. Which job would you like? <laughs> unreal, unreal. Like from not even thinking about being in newspaper media at all to having a job as a cadet journalist and then to being offered two jobs in radio with about 18 months after. Um in a week. And I so being totally un, inexperienced, uh, I was trying to mull it over. And I thought to myself, if I go to 6IX, I'll get stuck in a newsroom. And I knew what radio was all about. I mean, everybody listened to radio in those days. There was no internet, and, you know, no anything else except records, the fantastic black plastic. <laughs> and so 
so I thought if I go to 6IX, I'll just be a journalist. But if I go to, because the job at six at 6MD in Meriden involved everything. It involved um, programming, picking the music, writing commercials, reading commercials, reading the news, uh, doing programs. And it, I, I would learn, as it was explained to me, I would learn everything about radio. And I thought, well, there's got to be something good about that. You know, it's, I, I will learn everything there is to know, whereas if I go to um, the, the newsroom, that'll be it. I'll just be stuck in the newsroom. So I, uh, some people couldn't understand. I always make my decisions based on intuition, and I just knew that that was the right job. And many people were uh, aghast that I would give up the opportunity to be on a city station to go to this as yet unproven, unknown you know, radio station in the country. But that turned out to be the best thing I ever did because I did learn everything there was to know about radio and I had a great time there. It was a fantastic grounding and I think, you know, one that is not many, many people get to get these days. Of course, you weren't totally lost to 6IX because you did end up back there um, sharing the microphone with uh, Channel 7's David Lowe. So what was the format of that program and what was that on-air partnership like? Uh, I, I agreed to take the job because it was a morning talk program and I was to be like the, you know, the the host and Davis was to be the presenter, the the, the talent, the star. And, uh, and so I was um, still quite inexperienced at talk radio anyway. I mean, I could spin discs with the best of them, but... Um, uh, at talk radio, I was completely inexperienced. And so it was coming up to the time when we were going to prepare for the program. And we uh, the first day came around, nobody could find David. And I mean, I can talk about David now because, you know, David's long gone, bless his soul, and nobody could find him. And I'm starting to panic because, you know, we're it's the deadline is looming. We're going live to air 10 o'clock in the morning. And morning women's, it used to be called. I hope they don't call it that now. I don't know what they call it now. <laughs> and so so the next day came, no, Dave, nobody could find David. And I said, look, we're going to air, like on Monday, this was on like Friday, and we're going to air Monday morning. Um, and we, we I, I had lined up a couple of interviews and, uh, and, um, and picked out a few records, but that was it, like to fill up two hours with. And uh, so anyway, um, the morning of the program arrived and still no David. And what happened was that they finally found David at the racetrack. <laughs> David was an inveterate gambler and preferred uh, going to the racetrack to preparing, and it didn't even turn up on the day. So... So I was I was terrified, and I'm I muddled my way through. I you know somebody came in and had a chat to me, and I I, I can't even remember most of it because I was so terrified. And so I said to them, "I oh, look, I can't do this if, without David. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. I'm, I'm I don't have enough experience." So they they organised for somebody else to do the program. Uh, mind you, they could have done something to keep me there. 
but I don't think they tried very hard and I wasn't, they, they could tell that I wasn't too keen. <laughs> I ended up producing a couple of, a, 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 a program before that um, with a couple of guys called John, Peter Dean and John Fryer called Can We Help You? And it was a fantastic format. So I was the third wheel on that program. I did the panels and it was a talk, a talk program, a talkback program, and people would ring up with a problem. You know, they'd say, "Well, you know, I, I've got, I've, I've nearly finished my sweater, but I've got one ball of wool to go, and I can't find it anywhere." And somebody else would ring up and say, oh, "I've got a ball of that wool. I'll help you out." It was a terrific program. It was really very, very popular, and it was very high rating program. So your time at Six IX came to an end, and you started exploring other options. Uh, how did all that come about? It got to the point where I thought, well, I'm not really getting anywhere here. Um, and somebody offered me a job doing uh, public relations for the Playhouse Theatre in Perth. And, you know, you're young. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. That just sounded like a good idea to me at the time. Mm. So I thought, okay. So so I went and did uh, publicity at the Playhouse Theatre and met lots of actors like Joe Hashem from Number Ninety Six mm-hmm. was one of the actors who, um, who was a friend of mine in the day, and Penny Hackforth Jones was at the Playhouse then, and lots of actors were coming and going, and you know I made friends with them, and and it, I had a lovely time, and then I went to Sydney, on a working holiday, yeah, the working holiday was the big thing you did back then in the sixties and seventies, and lots of people went to England, and um and set down roots in Earl's Court in London, which was the big Australian quarter there. But I wasn't quite game to go all the way to London, so I just went to Sydney. And I and I stayed in King's Cross because a lot of my f- actor friends lived in King's Cross because it was close to all the theatres. But then when I arrived, they all went on tour. And I, I was left by myself, so I had to get a job. I thought, it is a working holiday, so I had to get a job. And I, there was nothing in radio, absolutely nothing. So uh, I went to an employment agency, said, I need a job. And they said, what's your experience? I filled the forms out and everything. They said, well, you're not very good for very much, are you? (laughs) (laughs) Talking on the radio. And so they said, we'll give you a job interviewing people for jobs. And that's the only job I got fired from, I've ever been fired from. And I got fired. The reason I got fired was because I wouldn't push people into jobs they didn't want or weren't suited for. And and I got this pink slip, not a, not a, you know a, a fire notice. I got a, a I got a slip in my pay saying you know you your quota isn't high enough. You must make make you know put a certain number of people in jobs. You're not doing the right thing by the company. So I uh, I went to the manager and I said I'm. Um, well, I'm not going to do it. And they said, well, you have to do it. And I said, well, I'm not, so I'm resigning. I quit. And I, they said, no, you're not. We're firing you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a mutual agreement. Now, interesting, uh, your next move, because uh, you basically went back to the future from where it all started at Katanning. Why the move back home? I went back to Katanning to visit my folks because I hadn't seen them for ages. And I just called out to the radio station just to say good day to my friend, the engineer, George, who had uh, recorded me in the first place and sent my tape to 6IX. And I went out there to say good day to him and his wife. And he said, well, what are you doing at the moment? I said, well, nothing, actually. I'm just visiting mum and dad. And he said, do you want a job? 
this is what happened to me. Like <laughs> people just offered me jobs. When I went to the uh, employment agency to get a job, they gave me a job. <laughs> so he said, we're starting up local programs here, the same as what you did at 6MD. And uh, so we'd like you to come work for us. So I did. And it was great fun. Um, I met my first husband there and he became the manager and we had we did lots of fun stuff. We ran talent contests and you know, and the radio built the radio station up to being a real part of the community, which it wasn't before then, because it literally was just the news out of the local paper. Mm. And so eventually it got to the point where we'd sort of got as far as we could go there. And so that's when we came to Melbourne. ABC. Nineteen seventy-three, and as you said, the big move to Melbourne and to Three AW. You were working mid-dawn, but also too, it was a significant time at the station because they had the likes of Ormsby Wilkins, Norman Banks, and of course Claudia Wright butting heads every morning before hosting their own programs. Now, no doubt there were some genuine fireworks at times. Oh crikey, yes! Like I, I, uh, I actually only did the midnight to dawn for a while because, apart from anything else, the hours just wrecked me. I mean. Anybody who's done mid to midnight to dawn who's listening will will understand what I'm saying. Plus, I was all by myself in the building and there were ghosts in that building in the cobblestone courtyard in Latrobe Street when 3AW was there. Um, so I, I said to the program manager at the time, Bob Quinn, I said, look, I can't do this. I'm, 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 I tried to resign from that job as well. <laughs> I said, no. We're not firing you. Um, uh, I, he's, I'm not firing you. I'll, I'll uh, put you in the creative department. And so I worked in the creative department, but I also um, produced Norman Banks and Martha Gardner. So I was present at 8.30 in the morning for the great debate, and some people might remember this. So Norman Banks... Ormsby Wilkins, who was my mentor, he was absolutely fabulous. He he championed me. He was my knight in shining armour, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. And Claudia Wright, who I also learned a tremendous amount from. And the three of them would have at it from half past eight till, I think it was eight till 8.30 or half past eight till nine, every morning, they would have this called the great debate. And they would be at each other's throats verbally and and Claudia would do would say things like Norman get your hand off my knee <laughs> <laughs> and we'd be we would be just rolling about in the control booth it was just it was the most is electric the most electric radio i think i've ever heard and um I saw one of the most horrifying sights in my radio career, which is I came to work early one day and found Norman in his underwear on his exercise bike. I said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, Norman, I didn't realise. He said, oh, that's all right, don't worry, it's okay. Now, that would be a lasting memory from your radio days, I'm sure. Tell me, how significant was it for a young female broadcaster to see someone like Claudia holding her own in a predominantly male-heavy industry? Well, look, 
she did it tough, Cordia, because it, it was it was very male dominated, completely male dominated, and um, and and it was also during the age of feminism. So Claudia was uh, promulgating feminist ideas and talking about not only feminism but uh, racism and a lot of uh, prominent issues at the time. And I, she is responsible for me really being the. That that when I eventually got to being on three AW again in in the eighties, I a lot of the issues that I was espousing were were learned at the knee of Claudia. Mm-hmm. You know, we she she also was very keen for me to get ahead, and um, I learned a tremendous amount from her too. But but it it was it was a tough gig for her, and it took a lot out of her. Um, it was very very stressful. And if I'd realised how stressful it was at the time, I might not have done what I did later, which was to go into to do what she was doing on the ABC and 3AW. Mm. So between the three of them, I did learn from Ormsby as well, um, but mostly how how wonderful the Crusades were and what it was, how great it was to be a knight in a knight, literally a knight, <laughs> shining armour. Speaking of Ormsby, around that time his wife Billy Karen was hosting the afternoons on AW. Even then, were you looking from afar thinking there might be a future spot for me in afternoons? Well, I was looking everywhere because I'm very ambitious. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, but I wasn't going to hustle Billy or anybody out of the way. Um, and, and as it turned out, I left 3AW anyway because... I got a mysterious phone call um, from who from I don't know who this person was to this day. But I was in the creative department and I picked up the phone rang and I picked up the phone and this voice said, if you applied for a job at the ABC, you'd get it. Think. If that person is listening <laughs> and they know who they are, I'd love to know who you are. Because and they, I don't know, they probably passed away by now. I don't know how old they were at the time, but um, but I thought when I, I thought to myself, why haven't I done that? I mean, I, I'd, I'd thought about the ABC when I first arrived in Melbourne, but once I was entrenched at Three AW, I hadn't really looked in that direction. So I, and that and it did it propelled me. So I rang the program director and said I'd like to. I like a job at the ABC. He said, well, you have to audition. So I did. And and I got the gig. So there I was on the ABC, but not at not on, on City Radio yet. That's right. It included a stint on Radio Australia as well. Tell us about that experience. Absolutely fantastic. I loved my time at Radio Australia almost more than any other time in my radio career because it wasn't terribly stressful, although I did have to do early mornings, like the breakfast program, which is a bit gruesome. But we broadcast all over the world in those days. Now there's no Radio Australia at all. It's tragic because it's such a tremendous uh, avenue for promoting Australia, Australian goods and Australian culture. And it was uh, like a little United Nations. So there was the French department and the German department and the and the Pacific department and and the uh, and the French department also covered, of course, New Caledonia and Vanuatu, and uh, and and we had regular um, social uh, events where people would get up and perform from their own culture. 
It's absolutely fabulous. And I also did um, Calling Antarctica as well um, because uh, Mary Adams did Calling Antarctica and she did the afternoons on 3LO then, it's now 774. Um, but every now and again she'd go on holiday or, you know, uh, and, and I would fill in for her and so I would do Calling Antarctica. And that was a tremendous time. I really enjoyed that experience. And that was when Radio Australia was in Lonsdale Street. It then moved. And I was also at the same time reading the news on City Radio on now 774. So I would run from reading the news on Radio Australia. I'd have to run to Burke Street, to 500 Burke Street, where the studios, were, the newsroom was located, fly up in the lift as quickly as I could, hurtle out of the lift, into the booth and they would shove the copy in my hand and I would cold read the news that because the two newses were like so close together. That was not a nice experience. I remember going up in the lift at Marlin House and it was a very badly designed building. I don't know what it's like now, but that the wind used to whistle in the lift and it was very eerie and and my heart would be thumping and you know, will I get there on time? Won't I get there on time? So that was my time at Radio Australia. It was, it was fabulous. Now, of course, following Radio Australia, there were three years at 3LO. So how did you enjoy talking to the local audience and how did those three years prepare you for the cut and thrust that was to come in commercial radio? Well, how I got onto 3LO was I was at Radio Australia and there was a woman doing the morning program uh, called Elizabeth Bond and she disappeared. Nobody knew where she'd gone. <laughs> she just disappeared and... Um, everyone was a buzz. You know, the radio industry was a buzz about who was going to replace Elizabeth Bond. Nobody was talking about me and nobody was asking me. And I thought, well, I'm not sitting here waiting to be asked. I'd worked with Claudia Wright, remember. <laughs> I'm not waiting to be asked. So I rang the program director again. I said, you need me. He said, what for? <laughs> he said, to replace Elizabeth Bond. Oh, he said. I hadn't thought of that. I said, no, you hadn't. So he said, you'll have to do an audition, damned auditions. Um, it was the ABC in those days. I don't, mm. they don't think they ask you to do auditions these days. They probably ask you for a tape of something. But anyway, um, I did the audition and I got the gig. And I so I did mornings on 3LO. And that was current affairs and lifestyle. <clears throat> and, and, then, and it was very popular. And I was up against Darren Hinch on 3AW. And occasionally we would call one another on air and the ABC and 3AW did not like it. They were really annoyed, but we did it. We were being a bit of a larrikin, which Darren still is. I'm probably a little bit more sober and sedate these days. But did it prepare me for the big um, change to com to city commercial radio? Uh, uh, no, it didn't because the ABC are very kind. Um, and commercial radio generally was not, and I'm talking about in the day. I can't really speak for now, but in the day. The ABC were much more equal in how they treated women. They were much more open to having women on air. I've, uh, my general experience at the ABC was uh, kinder in that respect. Personality 
1981, and it's back to the Trobe Street and to 3AW. Now, we've heard some very strange ways as to how your appointments have come about in the past. How did the return to 3AW come about? I was at a gig at the Hilton Hotel, one of those cabaret nights with Dionne Warwick or someone in the 80s. And Darren and uh, the manager of 3AW at the time, Brian White, was sitting at the next table. And Darren waited for a lull in the crowd. You know how when you're in a room full of people, suddenly there's a moment of silence? Mm -hmm. And he yelled out, hey, Muriel, why don't you come and work for us? And I laughed. Everybody laughed. You know, ha, 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 how how funny that is. And Brian uh, White sidled up to me later and he said, been meaning to give you a call said, meet me tomorrow, 4.30, in the bar downstairs. <laughs> this is at the Hilton. It was all very cloak and dagger. It's wonderful. <laughs> so I met him up in, in the afternoon and we did a deal. The deal was struck and, and I moved to 3AW to do the afternoon program. So how much had the station changed in the time that you left till the time you returned? Uh, well, um Open line, talk back, talk radio was becoming a lot more. And look, we started, uh, Norman Ormsby and Claudia started it like the controversial type radio. Nobody had ever heard anything like that on radio. People in the 60s in, in radio were very polite and had, you know, and, and it was preferred that you had a, a bit of an English accent. Um, and some of the, um, Rocky Jockey stations that played pop music were experimenting with having like first they experimented to have they had to have an American accent because you know they they play rock and roll and they had so of course they'd have an American and they'd put on an American accent it was ridiculous and then it was fashionable to have an Australian accent on on uh, rock jock stations and that filtered through partly maybe partly because of that to talk radio so. You know, people were were. It was okay to have an Australian accent. It was okay to to be controversial, and some people just took that a, a tad too far. And Darren won't mind me saying this because I've thrashed it out with him in private. Um, but but when I was on in the afternoon, I used to actually, I used to ring him up before and say good day. But now I would get on and criticise what he'd said that morning, and nobody liked that either on the station, <laughs> on the ABC. You in those days, you weren't allowed to have an opinion on anything. You you uh, had to be neutral down the line. And so I, when I went got to three AW, was more or less doing more of the same. And Brian White took me aside and he said, he said, "You're doing great, but we'd like to hear more of what you think." And I said, "Really?" He said, "Yes." He said, "Tell us what you think." So that was the genie out of the bottle, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, from then on, I just gave my opinion on everything and anything. And you know, we had some cr- cracker arguments with people. We had, but not arguments so much as, you know, interesting discussions because I appreciate a different point of view. You know, I appreciate someone who is trying to convert me over to their point of view. I appreciate that. And so it, but, but, but also I did um, uh, commentary, social commentary. And as a result of that, I was offered a gig with the Herald. It was just before it became the Herald Sun to write a column, an opinion on their opinion page every Monday, which I did for ages. 
And guess who who I spoke to about that gig, who took me out to lunch and offered me the job? Andrew Bolt. <laughs> now, Andrew and I could not be more poles apart. And there aren't too many people that would disagree with that one. Now, 3AW at the time had an exceptionally strong lineup and some pretty formidable opposition too, with the likes of Mary Adams on 3LO, the great Keith McGowan on 3DB, and of course Ernie Sigley, just part of that revolving door at 3AK at the time. Uh, some pretty good talent there in the afternoons. There was, but it wasn't any competition really. I mean, I say that in the nicest possible way. Uh, the ABC was the best competition, and uh, and yes, uh, Mary uh, did the afternoon program, and I and Mary's a great friend of mine. You know, we um, we loved each other, but it was a very strong lineup on Three AW, and and they did a great campaign, advertising campaign, because remembering that this is before Facebook, social media, the internet, and everything, everything had to be through established media, radio, newspapers. Billboards. I was on billboards everywhere. I was on the back of taxis. <laughs> it, was, it takes a bit of getting used. To, I was on television. It, was, mm. it takes a bit of getting used to for someone who isn't used to seeing their own face slapped all over the place. And the first time that I really realised what it meant was I was walking down the Trobe Street. Um, it was either before I went on air or after. Uh, and I probably was walking to the pub, truth be known. Because we had, you know, we used to have lunch uh, sometimes before I went on air, uh, a little break for lunch. And um, and this uh, guy pulled up in a in a clapped out old Holden, like there's a hoon car. Mm-hmm. And, and he looked a bit like a hoon. And I thought, oh, my God, he's going to attack me. He wound his window down and said, g'day, Muriel, how are you going? <laughs> and of course, he knew it was me because I had a red helmet hairdo in those days. And that was that. That stood out like you could you could pick me out in the crowd just because of that hairdo. It was a very strong lineup. It was it was it was fun days. It was interesting days, and then uh, and I rated very well, and and I rated number one few you know several occasions. And I, I have heard people have told me in the industry that it's the first time that a woman is rated number one in a talk show in primetime radio in Australia. So it was it was tremendous, but it was very stressful. Mm. Three hours of a talk every day and three hours of dead air that you had to fill up with something. It, gosh, it was tremendous. I got to to talk to so many people about so many different things. Not only on three AW but on the ABC as well, and uh, yeah, it was it was a great time. I did the whole of the eighties from nineteen eighty one to nineteen ninety one on three AW in the afternoons. I got to travel overseas um, uh, on assignments, and you know, uh, and people offered me free airfares, free accommodation to go and promote various des- overseas destinations. Qantas was uh, one of them. I used to get frequent trips from, and I, I didn't even have to be a frequent flyer. Now, you were at AW in 1986 when John Blackman decided that the grass might have been a little bit greener over at 3AK with the CBC network. There seemed to be a genuine war of words between he and Darren Hinch. How determined was AW at the time to sink those new kids on the block? Oh, of course they were, but they didn't consider them much. Um, they didn't really consider them. Uh, much of a it was it mattered that John Blackman was there, uh, but they did, but they didn't really consider them that much of an opposition to be honest. 
but there was a enormous antipathy uh, against John because not only had he left 3AW, but he'd left Bruce Mansfield, his mate. And that was that that was the reason that there was a, a campaign out against him. It wasn't so much that he moved to another station. You know, pe- pe- people always say nobody's indispensable. And, uh, and yeah, I think that's probably generally true. But I think that the the war really was a lot about him abandoning Bruce because Bruce was on the breakfast program with John as another character, Uncle Roy. You know, he wasn't there as Bruce Mansfield. That was his gig being Uncle Roy. And suddenly Uncle Roy hadn't didn't, you know, was left on his own without his partner to bounce off. Uh, but I, when when the first ratings came out, of course, 3AK tanked and 3AW, as usual, did very well. And I I was at uh, a restaurant um, opposite the Fitzroy Gardens, Gowans Restaurant, but he was a well-known uh, local figure at the time, restaurateur. We fronted up for our ratings dinner, celebratory dinner, and guess who's sitting at the table next door? Blackers. So Darren's on our table and Darren's getting tanked. And and he's and so he starts hurling insults at John. And we ended up all getting thrown out of the restaurant from memory because we caused such a ruckus. I mean, I was just sitting there sort of, you know, trying to hold it in. <laughs> uh, I wasn't going to get involved because, you know, because um, Darren was doing it enough for everybody, you know. So so there we were, um, you know, basically getting evicted. As we mentioned, a very successful time for you at AW in the 80s. How and why did it end? I, I resigned. I went, uh, I, I, I wanted to resign and I got talked into staying for another six months. And the reason why I resigned was because, number one, I'd had enough. I was really burning out. And I had this, I think I credit myself to have the sense to get out while the going was good. But I, I got talked into staying for another six months and I wish I hadn't done that. Because I left in the middle of the year, people thought that I had been fired, which is un- totally untrue. And uh, of course, 3AW didn't do anything to dispel the rumours because it made them look better. But it was very, it was a very awkward time. Uh, but... But uh, the time came and I left and and I was doing other things. I was doing, I, I had a, a gig um, doing interviews for the then Commission for the Future. Uh, would that we had one now, but <laughs> anyway, we don't. Uh, but that we had a Commission for the Future and I was doing interviews about what the future was going to be like for them and, uh, and doing a couple of other things. And I got a phone call to say that, Tragically, uh, Mary Adams had had a very bad car accident and would I, could I fill in for her? So this is, this is like weird stuff, right? So I start at the 3AW, I go to the ABC, I get headhunted by the ABC, I get headhunted back to 3AW, then I get headhunted back to the ABC. It was quite strange. And I filled in for Mary uh, Adams in the afternoon program, and she, the, uh, unfortunately, she took, did took quite, take quite a while to recover. It was a bad accident, and uh, so I was there while she recovered. And then 
1992, I went to university and started to study. Okay, just a couple of quick questions to finish off. Outside broadcasts are part of the job. Some consider them a great way to connect with the audience. Others see them as an occupational hazard. How did you view them? I hated them with a passion. (laughs) I absolutely loathed them because, you know, you're in a fishbowl being ogled either in a shop window or in a a caravan out at the Melbourne Cup being ogled by people. You know, I mean, I didn't hold it against the people. You had to tart yourself up, which I always did anyway. I mean, I had to look presentable. Um, But no, no, I didn't like the OB outside broadcast. Uh, And and the Melbourne Cup was my most unfavourite because I, I don't know how many years in a row I did the Melbourne Cup. You know, and it just gets old after a while talking to half-tanked celebrities. So they, for us, they can't string two words together sometimes. And so I had to do most of the talking anyway. <laughs> I think the the most untanked person I ever interviewed was Ida Buttrose. And Ida was icily calm and very lovely. And she's a hero of mine, personal hero. But, yeah, it, it, and it was a bit of, some of them were fun. I always liked talking to Peter Jansen. He was fun. And you know, and and whoever whoever famous who were the famous people that were there, I always got to talk to them. But the but sometimes the more famous a person is, the less they have to say in an interview. Now, as we know, most broadcasters are used to live reads on air, but very few are actually involved in singing the advertisements. Tell us about your association with the Resi. <gasps> yeah, so I I I was I I only did um, endorsements which is I, I only would do an ad if I endorsed the product and I believed in the product. And so that I was uh, asked to do the Resi uh, ads for the Resi Building Society. And, and I, so I said yes, because I, I, I had regard for the company. And, and as a result of that, there was a series of commercials which were tremendous. I, I'm still proud of them to this day. And so uh, the uh, advertising agency said that the representative from the advertising agency said, can you sing? I said, yeah, of course I can sing. And they said, would you sing in a commercial? I said, oh, yeah, thinking that they were going to ask me to hum a couple of lines, you know, or or, or sing. And, and they said, well, look, we've written these new lyrics to the Radetzky March. Would you be happy to march down Bank Place in the city with a crowd of people behind you and sing these words to the Radetzky March? Wow. I mean, it was like they'd thrown a glove down in front of me. I had to do it. It was epic. We went to the studio and recorded the words to the Radetzky March, which were check charges are a great big boss. You don't even have checks now. And I sang the song. Everybody thought, Oh, it was fabulous. And so down Bank Place, I matched, marched, miming to the song with this crowd of people behind me. And there were cameras on cranes. There, there, it, was, it was like a feature. They were shooting a feature film. And the result is epic. I mean, if I'm not just saying it because it's me, but it's uh, to me, it's one of the uh, television commercials that epitomizes mm. the, all the work that went. And it was shot on film like on film, not on video, and it epitomises the work that went into some of the beautiful commercials that came out in the 80s and 90s. 
Check charges are a great big bore. Check charges you'll pay no more in the resi. Get interest and pay your bills by phone. Check charges are a great big pain. Check charges never pay again in the resi. Get interest and pay your bills by phone. Like to earn up to 12.5% per annum and pay no check charges? Then open your Resi current account at any Resi agent or branch. Now, Muriel, speaking of singing, did you actually put your voice to vinyl at one stage? <laughs> I did. I made a f- couple of records that went absolutely nowhere. Um, and I made an album that was never released. Uh, but it did get me some appearances on television. And, uh, and you know, and, and it was enjoyable to do. It was fun to do. I liked making records and I had some lovely people playing in, in music on them, uh, like uh, Peter Robinson from The Strangers, is The Strangers, was the producer, mm-hmm. and Peter Couples played conga drums. I remember him coming to the studio in his fabulous embroidered sheepskin coat looking very hippie. Um, so yeah, uh, I, 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 and I still enjoy singing, but, uh, I certainly wouldn't do it professionally. So a broadcaster, journalist, author, singer, psychologist, I could ask where your passion really lies, or does it just reflect a certain time in your life? And which one do you think you're best at? Well, it does reflect a certain time in my life, because if you'd asked me when I started off as a cadet journalist, as a teenager, would I ever be a psychologist, I wouldn't even have known what a psychologist was. Radio was a particular time in my life and also I did quite a bit of writing as well. I was a broadcast journalist. I associated myself with that. When I came to, went to 3AW, I, I thought of myself not, not so much as more of an entertainer but more of a commentator so I, I espoused causes, um, Indigenous uh, causes, equality, anti-racism. I campaigned for the uh, um, decriminalisation of prostitution and so on. And I that was the part about that that I really enjoyed. And I enjoyed the fun bits too, don't get me wrong. But I think that was the most satisfying thing for me about my radio career. But when I thought about being a psychologist was when I had psychologists on my program. And I heard what they had to say, and it all made perfect sense to me. And I was sitting at, at the desk on 3AW during the, one of the afternoon programs, and I, I was thinking about what I was going to do because I knew I was going to do something else. And I thought, well, what am I? I'm not going to be the tired old tired of radio. That's exactly what I said to myself. I'm going to do something else. And then I thought, I know, I'll be, it was one of those gut feeling, intuitive things. I'll be a psychologist because I reckon I'd be good at it. I can do it till I'm 90. I can do it sitting down, and it's still talking for a living. Now, finally, Muriel, you kept your listeners well informed through the pregnancy and early development years of your daughter, Amy. Tell me, if Muriel Cooper was on air now, would we be receiving similar updates regarding your grandchild, Elliot? Of course. (laughs) Of course you would. Um, uh, Yes, um, because I, I think people talking about their family is wonderful. I, and that's one of the things I like about social media. I like it when people post pictures of their grandkids and, you know, their their evenings out and their date nights and their holidays. I think that's what Facebook is best at. You know, it's 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 best at that. Instagram, maybe, you know, not so much, but but I think it's 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 a good opportunity to 
celebrate family and friends and holidays and pleasant, enjoyable things. I don't like it when social media gets mean. So tell me, what are the best things about grandmotherhood? Um, Well, the usual thing, of course, which is handing them back. (laughs) Uh, But I think the most enjoyable thing is to watch this little human being grow at my age and not be responsible and have to work at the same time and, and, you know, and have my brain uh, addled and, and taken up with so many other things. So that when I spend time with Elliot, I spend, I, my whole focus is on him. Not that it wasn't at most, uh, a lot of the time with Amy, but, but I can, I can do it now and be just, and just for pure enjoyment. Mm. So it's like all care and no responsibility. That was a way to say We hope you have a happy day Okay, Muriel, time for those 12 questions we ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? Uh, I think I was, um, I might have been um, at the station. I wasn't on air at the time. But yeah, that was a, that was such a tremendous shock. I remember where I was exactly when President Kennedy got shot. So I was walking home from school, down the hill from school, and this uh, fellow student was racing down down the ro- road, screaming out, the president's been shot, the president's been shot. But when John Lennon got shot, it was just like a, a weird calm, like an, an icy sort of before everybody erupted, you know, mm. just shock. Yeah. Tell me the last concert ticket you paid for. <laughs> Well, I never paid for any concert tickets, of course, when I was on on air. But the last concert tickets I actually paid for was for a concert um, by the Gregorian brothers at Balula House and Gallery in Mornington. Is there a concert act you regret never seeing? I know a concert that I regret seeing, which is a Bob Dylan concert. (laughs) It's terrible. (laughs) All the Bob Dylan fans will be howling me down. But no, I can't. I can't remember one, but no. Muriel, is there a word you had most trouble pronouncing on air? President. President. For some reason, president, the doesn't, it rattled in my tongue. Now, was there ever an incident on air that had you thinking you might get those don't come Monday orders? Oh, yes, when I said the F word. (laughs) Well, you know, um, in my defence, we did have to change studios because the studio had carked it and and in our rush to move over into the new studio, this was in 3AW, um, when I, I sat in the, the roller chair on the plexiglass and the chair went out from under me, my hand hit the microphone and as it hit the microphone, accidentally I let fly with the F word. Yep, happens to the best of us. Hey, listen, Skyhooks or Sherbet? It's got to be Skyhooks. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. Muriel, do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from your early radio days? From my radio days? Um, a, ba- a big box full of cassettes of my programs, air checks of my program. Can you recall the biggest news story that broke while you were on air? Uh, the Hoddle Street Massacre. Mm. It, it, I, and I think that was it. And from memory, it broke at right as I was coming on air. So... The, it was in the news right before, as, as a, a breaking story, right before I came on air at one o'clock. And so the, the program got thrown out and, and the rest of the program was 
most of it was devoted to updates and what was going on and we sent people out, you know, on the spot and so on and interviewed people and, uh, about, you know, um, this phenomenon mm. that they're all too familiar with in the United States. Is there a time with all the interviewing you did that someone walked into your studio and you were suddenly starstruck? Starstruck. Philip Adams. He was the only person that made me nervous to interview because he's so articulate and eloquent. He's got it away with words and I didn't, and I thought he's just going to show me up so badly. Can you recall the best words of advice from a program manager? Find out what people actually want and not what you like. And finally, Muriel, two albums that you'd consider the soundtrack of your teenage years. Um, oh, gosh. It's got to be, well, funnily enough, Bob Dylan. That was in the days when he actually could sing, uh, freewheeling. Um, he won't be listening, so I don't care. And and uh, and uh, Joan Baez was a great folk singer. I used to sing folk. I belonged to a folk club. And Joan Baez's album, I can't remember, but her first album, I played the grooves off those. Oh, and, of course, the Beatles. Sorry. Um the Beatles, not the very first one, but the one after that, with the Beatles. Well, Muriel, as John DeRomus would say, our time is up. We haven't even touched on your success as an author with your books such as The Tiger and the Bridge, The Wounded, and of course, Lucid. Thank you so much for being part of Pilots of the Airwaves and for your significant contribution to radio, especially in the 80s. Oh, pleasure. It's a pleasure. And I look forward to listening to more of your Pilots of the Airwaves. Muriel Cooper on Pilots of the Airwaves.